Well, it is a joy uh, to be here, and as Pastor Mark said, um, we're really just growing friends and, and sort of acquaintances. We haven't had a lot of opportunity to enjoy extended time together, uh, but when we first met, as he made reference to uh, a few years ago, it was actually in March of 2020, just a few days before all of the COVID insanity exploded. And uh, Martin Manton had been with us uh, in our church in Sacramento, and he preached on a Sunday morning. And later that day, I drove over to the Bay Area, and I think we rendezvoused in, in Walnut Creek or something like that. And then Martin went with Mark, but we had a meal together. And uh, little did we know, that was the last public meal I ate for a long time because it was just a few days later that everything broke with COVID and all. So there's always that uh, point of reference with you, uh, Mark. But I'm grateful for you and grateful for the blessing and the opportunity of being able to be here and look forward to continuing to grow uh, in getting to know you and your family and, and sharing in the things the Lord has. Um, as he mentioned, uh, there are at least a couple of men from our church. I think Austin, where is Austin? Are you here, Austin? There he is, Austin uh, Chan. Austin is a member of our church, and his family lives in the Bay Area. His girlfriend, Christina, whom he's with this morning, lives in the Bay Area as well. So good to have both of you, one of the faithful, available, teachable men in our church. Another faithful, available, teachable man is Terry Kwok, who's here on the front with me. He and I drove over uh, this morning, and uh, uh, Terry and Austin are actually roommates as well, among other things. So uh, blessing to have you both here, faithful, available, and teachable. In a spiritual sense, I might just mention that Terry is also available in a relational sense. So uh, I just thought I'd throw that out there. If there's any um, of you godly young women who are desiring to marry a godly young man who's perhaps pursuing ministry, um, today could be the day that you... Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. So just thought I'd throw that out there, and uh, Terry and I will have fun driving home together and chatting about things. So anyways, both these men are dear brothers, and I'm grateful that they could be here. I also want to bring you greetings from my wife, Lori. Uh, she was not able to come this morning. Um, for a few years now, we've been caregiving for her um, stepfather, who uh, turned 100 in February and is still with us. And uh, there's a whole long story there, but because of the needs with him, uh, she's unable to be with me this morning. But she and I have been married for a little over 34 years. Uh, very thankful for her, and the Lord has blessed us with four children who are all now adults. Our oldest is a daughter, and then we have three boys, and two of our children are married, and from those two marriages, we have two grandchildren uh, that we, we are delighted by and blessed by, and so uh, that's a little of our family, and then uh, they send their greetings, and then our church body, River City Grace uh, in Sacramento, sends greetings as well. Uh, among other things, for many, many years, I've been there a little over 23 years, but for many years, we've, we've had a unique connection with a steady stream of students from UC Davis, and there's a lot of students at UC Davis who are from the Bay Area, as many of you know, some of you uh, may have even been there, or you, you, you have uh, relatives that are there, uh, but for many years we've had a steady stream of folks, many of whom are involved in the Asian American Christian Fellowship there and otherwise, and so even though our church is, I don't know how far is our church from there, about 45 minutes or so, something like that, so it's not like we're around the corner, but we've been blessed to have uh, that connection and, and and relationships with a lot of the students there, so we're very, very grateful. So uh, bring greetings from everyone. 
Well, we want to look to God's Word this morning, and as you see uh, on your handout there, Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to look. Colossians chapter 2, and uh, verses 11 to 15, and the topic of confidence in the fullness of Christ. Confidence in the fullness of Christ. And in this letter, um, Paul opens the letter, you may be familiar with it, with words of thanksgiving and encouragement for what he sees of God's work in the lives of the Colossian believers. But it also becomes clear as the letter progresses that he is likewise burdened and concerned for them. He knows that they, just like us, live in a wicked world that is filled with many dangers of false teaching, dangers of false teaching that he knows threaten to take Christians captive. And so even though he's encouraged and grateful for what he sees of God's work in their lives, he's deeply burdened for them because of these dangers. And so we're going to focus on verses 11 to 15 in chapter 2, uh, but just to give a little bit of the context, I want to read our text, but begin in verse 6 of chapter 2. Uh, so let me read, beginning in verse 6, I'll read through verse 15, and then I'll lead us again in a brief word of prayer as we look into what the Lord has for us. But let's hear God's inerrant and eternal word, beginning in chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer again as we seek his help. Oh, Father, we thank you for the riches of your grace and mercy, righteousness and love and truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as Paul prayed, said how he prayed for these Colossian believers, so we pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of you and to fully please you and to bear fruit in every good work as we would increase in the knowledge of you. We pray that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, ever giving thanks to you who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of your people in light. 
And pray that you would help me to just uh, be empowered by your spirit to speak your very word uh, that you might do your work among us for your glory. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Well, I'm sure that probably all of you on a regular basis use your GPS. We used our GPS this morning uh, driving over here, the Global Positioning System. It is a wonderful resource. When we don't know where to go, we just punch in where we want to end up, and it guides us there. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but occasionally when the route comes up for where I'm supposed to go, sometimes I just think it just doesn't seem right. It seems to go against my instincts of where I think I need to turn and where I think I need to go. And inevitably, if I decide that I'm going to ignore my GPS and do what I think I should do and follow the route that I think I should follow, inevitably, it leads me into trouble. And I realize, you know, I should have just listened to my GPS or watched my GPS. Now, we know and we understand that the GPS is not a fail-proof system. It does, uh, can make mistakes. It's not ultimately authoritative in that way. But nonetheless, I've learned that generally, if I choose to ignore my GPS and just follow my instincts, it inevitably gets me into trouble. Now, I say that because it's a matter of confidence, isn't it? Whether or not I'm going to have confidence in my GPS or confidence in my instincts. And in a similar way, when it comes to knowing and trusting and following the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in God's word, it always becomes a matter of confidence. Are we going to trust him? Are we going to trust his word? Or are we going to follow after our instincts or our own ideas of what we think is best and how we think we should go? Well, as we come to the passage that we want to look at this morning, in verses 6 through 8, which of course leads up to uh, the text we're going to focus in on, uh, verses 6 through 8 here in chapter 2 are really the heart and the central exhortation of the entire letter. God wants his people who believe in Christ to keep walking by faith in Christ. That exhortation that Paul gives there is very, very clear. And again, it's the heart of the letter. In other words, to keep growing and maturing in trusting and obeying Jesus Christ and to avoid the dangers of false teaching that threaten to take us captive and to lead us into trouble. And these would be demonic and deceitful and enticing philosophies that are ultimately man-centered and destructive. And most fundamentally, as Paul says there at the end of verse 8, such philosophies are not according to Christ. And so this is the central call here in verses 6 through 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul's really strengthening these commands when he says in verse 9, For in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And Paul is emphasizing here, he's kind of giving an exclamation point uh, that all the fullness of God is in Jesus. All the fullness of God's character, his nature is in Jesus and believers have fullness in him. And so when he says then in verse 10, you have been filled in him, he's talking about what God has done for believers. 
He has permanently, irrevocably filled believers. He has filled us if we are believers. Or as the New American Standard and the New King James Version says, God has permanently made believers complete in Christ. Those translations use the word complete rather than fullness, but it pulls together the same idea. And this concept of fullness or completeness is absolutely massive and essential for Christians to understand. It has to do with our union with Christ and our unity in Him and with one another in the fullness, in the completeness of what He's given. And what it ultimately means, friends, is that in Jesus we have all we ever need. We have all we ever need in Jesus. In other words, in the same way that our lungs in our bodies were created by God to be filled with oxygen, life-giving oxygen, in the same way he has fashioned our souls to be filled with Christ. And in Christ we have all we need. And therefore, confidence in our fullness or our completeness in Christ is what will keep us on the narrow path of walking with him by faith and guarding against the seductive appeal of false teaching. Now, the need for our confidence in Christ and to maintain our confidence in Christ, the reason this, or the fact that this need is so essential and so big is why Paul then continues to elaborate on it. And that's what brings us to verses 11 to 15. Because with all that Paul says in verses 11 to 15, he's elaborating upon why it is we need and and can have absolute confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do as we get into verses 11 to 15 is give you sort of the, the main point, the big idea, the key truth of everything that Paul is saying here in verses 11 to 15. And it's really bound up in an exhortation. And here's what it is. It's a little bit of a mouthful, so uh, I'll say it a couple of times. But here's the heart of his exhortation in verses 11 to 15. It's this. Be fully confident in the full completeness that you have in Christ's fullness. This is a word to believers. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the exhortation is this. Be fully confident in the full completeness that you have in Christ's fullness. That's what God is saying through Paul here. Be fully confident in the full completeness you have in Christ's fullness. Now, Paul is going to elaborate on this full completeness that we have in Christ, and he highlights what I would call four features of fullness. That's what we see here in verses 11 to 15. And you have those listed in your handout there. These are four features of fullness that are given to strengthen our confident faith in Jesus so that we would continue to walk with him and him alone. So that's what we want to see this morning, these four features of fullness. Here is the first one, that in Christ you have been fully separated. In Christ, you have been fully separated. This is the point of what he says in verse 11, drawing upon the metaphor of circumcision. 
So he says in verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now using circumcision as a metaphor, Paul is describing how it is believers are separated to God. And in the Old Covenant, as we learn in the Old Testament, circumcision was an external sign that God instituted, intended to remind His people that they were to be fully separated from sin and fully separated unto God. And this was instituted in Genesis chapter 17 with Abraham, and it's echoed many times after that. But it's very clear that God's intention all along is that this physical sign was to be a symbol of the spiritual circumcision of heart that he was concerned about for his people. Now there's numerous places in the Old Testament where God addresses this matter of circumcision of heart. In other words, it's not just the physical sign as an end in itself. He was concerned about people's hearts. And so, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 16, as God through Moses is preparing the people to enter into the promised land, he talks about the importance of them being circumcised in heart. This is echoed again in chapter 30, verse 4 of Deuteronomy. And then we find in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, as well as in chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, exhortations and, and, and confrontations because the people were not circumcised in heart. They were perhaps going through a lot of the external motions, perhaps had even externally been circumcised, but there was no circumcision of heart. And the point and the emphasis in all of this is understanding that only God ultimately can accomplish this circumcision of heart for a person where their heart is separated from sin and separated unto him. Now Paul draws on this language in other places as well. For instance, in Romans chapter 2, listen to what he says in verses 28 to 29. And he's drawing upon all of these Old Testament references to circumcision as well. So Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision, he says, is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so we understand then, as Paul is making reference to this, back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, that he's talking about a spiritual circumcision of the heart that God has accomplished in people's lives through Jesus Christ. And in the way that Jesus was perfectly circumcised in heart, perfectly separated from sin, perfectly separated unto God, so now all who have union with him through faith are likewise circumcised in heart. He has separated us from sin, from the body of flesh, as Paul refers to it there in verse 11, unto himself. And the body of flesh refers to that natural, sinful inclination to rebel against God, to choose our own way rather than God's way. 
And so through Paul here in verse 11 of Colossians 2, God's declaring that in Christ and through Christ, we who are believers have been separated from our sinful nature unto God. In other words, he has transformed us and separated our hearts unto him. In other words, as Paul says earlier in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he has transferred us from this kingdom of darkness in this world to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has separated our hearts. He's redeemed us. He's reconciled us. He's forgiven us. And it means we're no longer alienated from him, but rather we belong to him. He has changed our hearts. He has changed our hearts. He has circumcised our hearts. So this is one of the features of this fullness that God has accomplished for us what we could never do for ourselves. We could never separate ourselves. We could never change our hearts, but he has changed our hearts in Christ. We have been fully separated in him. Well, this leads to the second feature that Paul then speaks of. In Christ, you have been fully regenerated. In Christ, you have been fully regenerated. And so now he carries on with this into verses 12 and the beginning of verse 13. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And he's speaking here ultimately of regeneration. And so in Christ, not only have we been separated unto God, but we who believe share in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the central reality that Paul is highlighting is there in verse 13, that though we had been dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive together with Christ. We've been regenerated. We've been born of him. We've been born again in a spiritual sense. God making us alive. God giving us new birth. And see, Paul is using baptism then as a metaphor for these spiritual realities that have taken place in us uh, by faith in Christ and the work of Christ in us. Baptism is a picture of that. Uh, that what we share in physically when we are baptized in obedience to Christ's command, publicly confessing, publicly displaying our, our repentance and our faith in Him, we're giving testimony and evidence to the fact that we've been buried, our old man in essence has been buried, and we've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Baptism is that. It's a picture of dying to sin and of being raised to new life in Christ. Now, Paul, of course, speaks of this as many other places in his letters as well. Uh, one of the more prominent places is in Romans chapter 6. And listen to what uh, Paul says regarding this matter of baptism. And it's, it's being symbolic and giving a picture of new life in Christ, of being regenerated. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so he's reminding us, he's teaching us, he's exhorting us that this picture of physical baptism reminds us of of our death in Christ, but also our new life in Christ. And so along with being fully separated unto God through the spiritual circumcision that he's accomplished in Christ, we're also fully regenerated unto newness of life in God. We have union in a very real spiritual way with Christ in the fullness of his life, of his death, of his resurrection and ascension. Again, we've been transferred into his kingdom and we possess new life in Christ and we have eternal life in him. And this is our hope, and this is our joy, and this is another aspect of the fullness of the confidence that we are to have in Christ because of what he has accomplished in separating us unto God and causing us to be born again and having a whole new heart that he has given. And so this is why we're to be fully confident in the full completeness that we have in Christ's fullness, fully separated and fully regenerated. And this leads to a third feature of fullness that we see in the text. The end of verse 13 and then verse 14, in Christ, you and I have been fully exonerated if we are trusting Christ. We have been fully exonerated. Listen to what he says there, the end of verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He's speaking here of of the wonder and the riches of being fully exonerated. And to be exonerated means to be permanently cleared of any accusation. Permanently cleared from any guilt and any blame. It means to be fully, completely, totally forgiven, exonerated. And notice the emphasis on the forgiveness of all our trespasses. That encompasses everything, dear friends. Everything past, everything present, everything future, every scope of every aspect of our sin and rebellion. That encompasses our affections, that encompasses our thoughts, that encompasses our words and our deeds, the things we do, the things we don't do, everything that is unfaithful to God, it's all bound up in that beautiful little word, all, all of it. Now, with what Paul has to say about this here in verse 13 and 14, he uses two word pictures that describe how this forgiveness through Christ occurred at the cross. Two word pictures that we see. The first has to do with cancellation. Cancellation. Notice what he says there in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, in Paul's day, this record of debt was in essence like a certificate of death that would accompany criminals on the cross. And this certificate of debt, or this record of debt, um, would itemize all of the specific 
crimes for which they were being punished. It was all identified and all identified or itemized so there was no question about the guilt and about the justice of this person being punished in this way. It was something, this, this record of debt was something of an IOU or even sort of a pledge giving evidence of the person's guilt in view of the law, giving evidence of the specific crimes for which they were now paying. And you see, Paul's using this as a word picture to speak of the guilt that we all possess before the holy, righteous God of the universe and His holiness and righteousness being displayed through the law. In other words, it has to do with all of our own itemized specific sins in reference to the law, our record of debt. And you see the wonder and the riches of what God is saying through Paul is that in Christ that has been now canceled. And the sense of it being canceled means that it has been completely, totally, permanently eliminated. It's been wiped out. It's been deleted from the hard drive, if you will. And it's gone because Jesus himself paid for the debt on the cross and no more payment is due. And this leads to the second word picture. These word pictures interplay with each other. The first one uh, encompasses this matter of the cancellation of this record of debt. The second word picture is at the end of verse 14 when he says uh, that regarding this record of debt, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And Paul's emphasizing his point. And we know that Jesus was nailed to the cross. Do you see what Paul is saying? That with Jesus and in Jesus in a mysterious, mind-boggling way that, that, that we can't even begin to fully fathom, it was our record of debt that was being nailed to the cross in Jesus. The song we sang, His Robes for Mine, that, that, that speaks of this substitutionary reality. Our sin on Him. His righteousness given to us. That's what Paul is speaking about, that our record of debt was permanently nailed to the cross once and for all when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He set it aside. It's been nailed to the cross permanently. This is what the third stanza of Horatio Spafford's well-known hymn, It Is Well, rejoices in. I'm sure you're familiar with this stanza, My Sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We can think also of the hymn that declares wonderfully, Jesus paid it all. Beloved, that's why we're fully exonerated. Because God has canceled our record of debt. He set it aside because it was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. And this is our hope. We've been forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future. It's been fully canceled once and for all. We're eternally free from the guilt and the condemnation and the accusation of our sin. 
And what a vital truth this is for us to lay hold of as we still fight sin on a daily basis because we know that we are forgiven. So we fight not as those who are under condemnation, but as those who are forgiven and those whom God is for in Christ. And that so radically helps us in our battle against sin. Yes, we have real sin, we have real guilt, but we have really been exonerated. And so this is another aspect of the fullness that we have in Christ and why we ought ever to be fully confident in the full completeness that we have in Christ's fullness. We've not only been separated, we've not only been regenerated, but we have been exonerated. We've been fully exonerated. And this brings us to the fourth feature of our fullness in Christ. And this is what Paul speaks of in verse 15, that we are fully protected in him. Fully protected. Uh, We could also say we are fully secured in him or we are fully delivered in him. All of these things are bound up in in the point of what Paul says in verse 15. When he says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, what does it mean for someone to be disarmed? It means that they are rendered powerless. Rendered powerless. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now at a human level, we know there were many spiritual and political rulers and authorities who were involved in the, in the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's very true. And at one level, that's perhaps what Paul is speaking of. But we also know that by identifying rulers and authorities, he's ultimately speaking of all of the demonic powers and beings. Satan and all of his demons who were ultimately at work within the hearts of the wicked people who were involved in the destruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, earlier in chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16, uh, he has spoken about these demonic spiritual powers as well. But his point here in verse 15 of chapter 2 is that at the cross, at the cross, remember he's just spoken about what Jesus accomplished at the cross in bringing about our exoneration Christ also permanently triumphed over these wicked, rebellious powers. He permanently disarmed them, permanently rendered them powerless, and he put them to open shame. And so in this triumph, Jesus now fully protects his people from all spiritual and human powers. That's the point of what he is saying. And the picture here that he's drawing upon in verse 15 is of a Roman conqueror who, having had an extensive victory, to demonstrate and to celebrate that victory would have an extensive victory parade in his own kingdom. And this was a parade in which the conquered king and all of the subjects of the conquered king were now being paraded as disarmed prisoners. In other words, they're put to open shame and humiliation by the victorious king. And this would happen as a way of publicly demonstrating to the king's own people that they're forever delivered and protected from those who were once their enemies. And you see, that's the point that Paul is driving home. That Christ is supreme. That Christ is the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And he has permanently put his enemies to open shame so that his people are to have no fear at all, but to be secure, to know that we are fully protected in the glorious victory of Jesus. You know, just before Jesus went to the cross, as he was having those final hours with his disciples, and in John's gospel, we have the most extended account of all that he shares with them as he's, he's commissioning them on the mission he's sending them on as he's soon to return to the Father by way of the cross. And he speaks of all of these things in John chapters 13 through 16, but at the very end of that discourse, the very last thing that Jesus says to his disciples are these words, he says, in this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's speaking of his supreme authority and power and victory. And beloved, for you and I who are in Christ, we live in that victory. We live in his protection. We live in that assurance. And you see what confidence this ought to give us in Christ, along with every other aspect of the, of the focus of the fullness that we have in Him, the focuses of fullness. And see, this is Paul's point. And isn't it true, the cross, as those events unfolded, those events seem to appear to be Satan's most decisive victory. And the powers of his darkness and the powers of the world seem to be uh, accomplishing exactly what they desired in destroying Jesus. But in reality, what was the cross? It was the event of Satan's total defeat. Because the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone as was prophesied in Psalm 118 and as we see echoed many times elsewhere. It was all God's doing. Even at the hands of wicked, rebellious people who are accountable for their wickedness and their rebellion, and even ultimately at the agenda and the efforts and the power of Satan, but God was superseding all of that to accomplish his victory. And you see, beloved, that's why it means for you and me that in Christ we can have no fear. No fear because he is protecting us. This is the assurance, this is the confidence, this is the hope that Paul would speak of many places elsewhere. One of the most notables at the end of Romans chapter 8. No doubt you're familiar with this passage and with what he says here as he rejoices in and cherishes the, the great love of God in Christ and the fact that nothing, he says, can separate me from that love. And just listen to how richly he speaks of this, verses 38 and 39 of Romans chapter 8. He says, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He knew he was protected. He knew he was secure. He had confidence. And therefore, he could be obedient, eagerly so, even when it meant suffering even when it would ultimately mean death in Paul's case. We have to die to ourselves. And we can do so in the confidence of the fullness that we have in Christ. And so, beloved, this is the big truth that Paul is exhorting here in verses 11 to 15 in the full context of all that he's burdened for for God's people, that we would be fully confident in the full completeness that we have in Christ's fullness. 
that we would lay hold of these four features of fullness that he highlights. That in Christ we've been fully separated. In Christ we've been fully regenerated. In Christ we've been fully exonerated. And we are fully protected. And you realize in every single one of these features of our fullness, God has done for us and is doing for us in Christ what we could never do for ourselves. We could never separate our hearts unto God. We could never cause ourselves to be born again from spiritual death and alienation from Him. We could never exonerate ourselves. We could never protect ourselves. We're too vulnerable. He did for us and is doing for us everything we could never do for ourselves. And I would say at this point too, dear friend, if you are not trusting Jesus Christ, do you realize your horrific condition? Do you realize that you are in a dead-end road that is going to lead in God's eternal judgment? Because if you are not in Christ, you are not separated from your sin unto God. You are enslaved to your sin. You haven't been regenerated. You are, as Scripture says, dead in your sin. You haven't been exonerated. You haven't been forgiven. Your guilt is upon you. And you are not protected from the powers of darkness. In fact, you are enslaved to the powers of darkness. And so even this morning, friend, if you are not in Christ, if you've not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, you can do so this instant to call out to Him and say, Lord Jesus, I I need you. You may not understand very much at all, but if you understand that God is holy, that you're a sinner, that it is just and right for God to punish you and condemn you through all eternity because of your sin, but that in His love, in His mercy, in His grace, He has given the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can be fully forgiven, reconciled, and and come to know Him as your holy, good Father in heaven and spend eternity with Him. If you know and understand that at some level, cry out and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Turn from my sin and then talk to somebody here who's a believer when we're done and and seek help and encouragement from God's word as well. But don't leave this place without turning to Christ because your condition is perilous and far more dangerous than taking your own path rather than following a GPS. If you're taking your own path and not following the Lord, it will surely lead to eternal destruction. But again, for those of us who are in Christ, this is our hope, this is our confidence, this is our joy. This is why we're to continually have confidence in Christ. Now, in light of all of these truths, I want to ask a question, and it's simply this. Why, why does all of this matter? Why does Paul spend so much time speaking about this? And why is this so vital for God's people to be fully confident in the full completeness that we have in Christ's fullness? I think the reason is because it is very easy for our confidence in Christ to shrink and to evaporate and to diminish far more than we realize. And for any of you who have been believers for any length of time, you know and understand this experientially, I'm sure, as I know I do. It's very easy for us to subtly but definitely kind of begin to think in our minds, you know, I'm not sure Christ is really enough. 
We may not say it that way, we may not acknowledge it that way, but that's often what's going on in our hearts. Christ is not really enough. It's easy for our faith in Jesus to kind of wobble and waver, and when that happens, we become very vulnerable, we become very susceptible to false teaching. And you see, this is the burden of Paul in this letter. This is what he's concerned for the Colossian believers about as God is for his believers in every age. And the reason that this is so, here's the problem. Think about this. Yes, it is true that we are complete in Christ. We are fully complete in Christ. In Christ, we have everything we need. We are fully complete in Christ. But the problem is, we're not yet fully mature. We're complete in Him, but we're not yet fully mature. We're vulnerable. As I mentioned, uh, just a little more than a year ago, uh, the Lord blessed us with two grandchildren. Our first grandchild, a son, was born in July of last year, and then a granddaughter was born in January of this year. And my wife and I are just overjoyed. This is a whole new phase of reality that we love. And uh, they can come, they can play, we can spoil them, and then their parents take them away. And we're, uh, of course, they're just babies now, but we're, we're, we're excited and grateful for this. One thing that never ceases to marvel me with, with newborn babies and with infants, and I remember this when my own children were born, is looking at them and thinking, you know what, they are complete. They've got everything they need from a physical standpoint. They're fully complete, inside and outside, they're totally complete, but obviously, they're not quite yet fully mature yet, right? <laughs> There's a lot of maturity that's going to happen physically, emotionally, uh, relationally, mentally, spiritually, we pray that they would come to faith in Christ. There's a lot of maturity yet to happen. Well, the same is true, I think, in many ways, spiritually. When we're born of God, when we become new babes in Christ, we are indeed complete in Him. But then there's this whole process of growing to maturity. And that's what God is burdened for us to continue to become grow or to continue to grow and mature. That's why Paul tells the believers in chapter one how it is he's praying for them. And he's in essence speaking of, of them growing, maturing, and, and manifesting greater and greater fruit and Christ-likeness. But you see, the challenge and the problem becomes that because of our immaturity and because the Christian life can become very hard, very painful, very difficult, we need endurance, we need patience, we need joy, we need all of these things, it can be easy for us to begin to think, oh, I'm not sure Christ is enough. And we become more vulnerable, more susceptible to all kinds of false teaching. We think we need something more than Christ. And even as it was for these believers whom Paul is encouraged by, Paul is affirming, Paul is rejoicing and giving thanks for the work of God in their lives, he knows that they're vulnerable. He knows that they're susceptible to all manner of false teaching and thinking Christ is not enough. And he's going to get very specific, but you see how he warns them about this. In, in chapter 1, verse 23, he expresses concern that they would somehow be shifted away from the hope of the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 4, he, he's concerned about them being deluded with plausible arguments. In other words, that they would be deceived and, and pulled away from full faith in Christ by arguments that sound reasonable plausible. They seem to make sense. 
As we saw there in verse 8, he says that he's concerned that they would be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And see, he wants God's people to know and to understand we need to be alert to these things. We need to guard and we need to cultivate our confidence in Christ. And just think about how many ways plausible arguments and false philosophies and empty deceit comes to us, whether it's through books, whether it's through the media, whether it's through conversations that we have, whether it's through podcasts or any other forms, whether it's through our own family history or family traditions and experiences, there can be all kinds of plausible arguments. Now, in Colossians chapter 2, in verses 16 to the end of the chapter, Paul's going to get very specific about some of the specific kinds of things that uh, these Colossian believers were facing. A lot of uh, kind of a mishmash, a, a syncretistic uh, things that they were facing that had to do with legalism, that had to do with mysticism, that had to do with a lot of false philosophies. But the ultimate reality is that these were things that were not according to Christ. But think about some of the things that you and I face. Again, not only some of the ways these things come to us, but some of the thoughts that we might face that, that play into our, 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 our tendency to, to lose confidence in Christ, in our fullness in Christ. Sometimes we just think this isn't working. Have you ever felt that way? You know, Jesus just isn't working. Following Christ just isn't working. I've prayed, I've been in his word, I've done what I think he's wanted me to do, and yet look at what's going on in my circumstances. This just isn't working. And so we start subtly maybe to look for a better way. There's ways of thinking that say you can have your best life now, that you don't really need to suffer, that you don't really need to sacrifice. You can just find a better, more pleasant way. Sometimes our confidence wanes when we may be facing severe, serious issues in our own soul or relationally, issues with family members or issues with other people. And, you know, we think to ourselves, gosh, I've got to get some professional help here. You know, the church is fine, it's nice, we sing some good songs, there's some good things, but I really need some professional help. I need to find help from the experts. That's not to say that there may not be benefit of things that we can find, but it all has to be filtered through the grid of God's Word and of Christ. And if we're not careful, sometimes our inclinations towards those kinds of things can be giving evidence to the fact that we're losing confidence in Christ and in the sufficiency of who He is. Sometimes we think we need a better spiritual strategy. We need more rules in our lives. Or maybe we need more rituals. Or maybe we just need to do more work. We need some kind of a spiritual breakthrough or experience. Some kind of a secret thing that could happen to us. And we can easily be drawn into all kinds of things. And I tell you, and you know, many of you, there's, there's all kinds of things out there, even in the name of Christianity, even in the name of the Bible, that nonetheless are departing from robust, full confidence in the fullness of God in Christ and all that God in Christ has done for us. And so the call of the passage this morning, beloved, is to be fully confident in the full completeness that we have in Christ's fullness. You say, well, well practically, how do I do that? What does it look like? What should I do? Well, let me just give you a word for encouragement. Look to Colossians chapter 3. Look to Colossians chapter 3. And in light of all that Paul has been addressing in chapter 2, look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. If then 
You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with with him in glory. And then he goes on to get very, very specific about the, the, the walk of sanctification in Christ. To put off all that belongs to the old man. To put to death, he says at the beginning of verse 5, what is earthly in you. But then hand in hand with putting to death all that is ungodly and earthly, he begins to address a little bit later in the passage in verse 12, to put on all that we are in Christ. And a significant implication of all of this too, friends, is that we're to do this together as God's people. This is why the local church and God's design is so vital and so important because we walk with one another as we walk with Christ in unity with one another, in union with Christ in order to spur one another on in our confidence in Christ. So that as we're seeking to set our minds on Him and on things above, as we're seeking to put to death all that pertains to, to the old man and to that which is earthly, to our, to our sinful inclinations, and put on all that we are in Christ, that we're helping one another in those ways. That I could come to a brother in Christ and say, hey, I'm struggling with, with temptation towards lust, and I, I need help. Would you help me? Would you pray with me? Would you help, help point me to Scripture and to God's Word? Or we can come with any other number of things and just just help one another. That's God's design for the local church. So beloved, God calls us to be fully confident in the full completeness that we have in Christ's fullness and so to walk with Him, with one another with Him because He belongs to us if indeed we have come to Him. May God give us help to these ends and may God refine and purify our confidence in Him for his glory, for our joy, and for his purposes to use us to the blessing of others and the advancement of the gospel. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. And I don't know how it is for each man and woman, child, listening to this this day, but I know for my own soul, and you know better than anyone, I need to hear these things continually. I need this call. I need this exhortation to continually Uh, Be fully confident in the full completeness that you have given to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us in these ways. Help us to grow and mature and, and to be fully assured of all of your care and provision in Christ. And may you bless your word to that end in each one of our lives. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. And thank you so much.